postmodern and post-Christian are both terms that the, the church seriously needs to retire. We're going to the world to tell them who we are, and we're not going to the world to present who God is. The world in which so much is focused on building walls and keeping people out. An alternative way to live is to live by... It's almost like raising up a white flag and saying, ah, it's all the secular people's fault, and no one's listening or coming to our evangelistic how can we redesign Adventism to be effective at reaching emerging Western culture? That's what the Story Church podcast is all about. Adventism redesigned. Hey everyone, it's Pastor Marcus here. Welcome back to the Story Church podcast. It's been probably a month since our last episode on saying no to headship theology with Nicole Parker. And since then, I've been telling you guys to send in some questions, and we've got the questions, and we're going to explore these questions in this final Q&A episode. Uh, I will say this, we, we may not be able to get to every single question. Uh, we're going to do our best, but we've got limited time here. And also, there are some questions that will take an entire semester of school to, uh, to sort through. <laughs> so we'll add a little bit, we'll, we'll interact with it a little bit, but then we'll recommend some excellent resources that you can check out that will, will give you way more detail than we could possibly do on a one-hour podcast. So with that said, uh, welcome back, Nicole. How, how have you been over the last month? Fabulous. I've been so busy, but classes got out and I watched all my fabulous future pastors graduate, which gives me such immense satisfaction. These are just great young men and some young women that are going to go out there and make a difference in the church. And I love this church. I really want to see God do everything that he wants to do through his people. So yeah, that was great. Then my daughter graduated from high school and my sons have been finishing up the last little bit of homeschool and um yeah it's wow. been a great month wow. yeah good to be back yeah lots lots of moving pieces absolutely that not uh, awesome it's good to have you back um it's been it's been pretty pretty crazy on this side of the ocean um just lots of covid happening in perth right now i got a nasty flu but it wasn't the co- it wasn't covid I had this nasty flu. It lasted for like eight days. It was horrible. Um, it, it wasn't the worst flu I've ever had, but it certainly wasn't fun. Um, so glad that's over. And uh, I still haven't had COVID. have no idea how. I'm always out and about. You know, I, uh, I, I'm just one of those people. I'm just like, I don't know. How have I not had it yet? I don't know, but I'm not complaining either. So, <laughs> uh, so we're going to dive in, Nicole, and hit the ground running here because we did get quite a few questions. And, and what I'll do is um, I'll read them out to you and uh, just get your thoughts. And then uh, if I've got something to add, I'll add something. If not, we'll move on to the next one. But a big shout out to everyone who sent questions through. Thank you, guys. These are really meaningful. I uh, got some really, really good questions. And I think we're going to have a fun interacting here with them. Now, Nicole, I did send you a document on Google that's got the questions, but I'm not act- necessarily going to go in the exact order that they're there. So if that's okay. okay. Um, I'm going to start with the third one because I feel like it's a, it's a good one to start with uh, based on where we left off. And then we'll just uh, go through the, the rest of them as best as possible. So here's, here's the first one, which is the third one on the paper. <laughs> um, all right, here we go. It says, the thing about Jesus dying for us out of submission to the Father, if headship theology was right, was a big wow moment at first. But just seconds after, Luke 22 41 to 42 came to my mind, and I'm confused now. 
It says he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So it seems as if Jesus wasn't really keen on the whole idea, but because it was the Father's will, he died for us. It doesn't sound so great, but it seems to be there. So again, I'm confused. Any comment? Uh, I hope you see what I don't see here. Uh, there was a bit of a typo there, so hopefully that's what the last sentence meant. But yeah, go for it, Nicole. Yes. Okay. This is a great question and something I've grappled with myself. So um, I, I would say, here's the thing. Jesus is our example. So when he's on earth, he can't be everything that he is in heaven. He has to be tempted in all points like as we are. He has to struggle like we are. And so he has to model to us what submission to the father looks like. Um, in, the, in, in other words, when Jesus, like, for example, when he says, nobody knows when I'm going to come again, except my father only, and I don't even know, that doesn't mean that for all of eternity, he doesn't know, like he's up in heaven right now, just guessing, going one of these days, one of these days, I don't know, you know, but during his season on earth, he was in a specific situation in which he was acting and living as a human being, showing us how to live as human beings in full submission. So when Jesus says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done, you know, he can't see through the portals of the tomb. He doesn't know, except by faith, that he's going to be resurrected. And everything in him is just screaming, get out, get out, get out. I don't want to do this. And yet he's modeling to us, this is what it looks like to live in the midst of suffering, which we're going to have to do at the very end of time. And people have gone through throughout history. He's modeling to us. This is how you do it. You just let go of what you want and you do whatever God wants you to do in full surrender. So this doesn't mean that when Jesus was in heaven as a full-fledged member of the Godhead, that he and the father had this pecking order where he's like, okay, what do you want me to do? And God says, just go, you know, the father says, this is what you're going to do. We don't see any indication of that. But what we do know is when Jesus came as a baby, he had to learn, you know, he didn't come out of the womb and immediately start talking about theology. Yeah. He, he is, you know, he is just a baby in a manger, helpless. And then he grows up and learns things. He learns obedience by the things that he suffers. So during Jesus' time on earth, he is not in the same state as he was when he was in heaven. So when he was in heaven, I think this is a perfectly logical theology that in heaven, he and the father, as, you know, whatever you'd think, adult equals, you know, as members of the Godhead ruling the universe made decisions together. And yet Jesus, as a man on earth, modeling to us, this is what it looks like to live out this surrendered relationship with the father. You know, he shows us, this is how you say, not my will, but yours. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I love that because I think, you know, this might be a little bit slightly on the nerdier uh, side of the equation but um a lot of times what i find is when it you know we we believe in we don't believe when it comes to the trinity we, we don't believe that there's three separate gods and that the three gods are in sort of like a you know negotiating uh with each other you know should i do this should i do that you know who's gonna do this it's it's it's, it's, it's not three separate gods in an active negotiation it's it's one god and there's there's three beings that compose that one God, but they're one in will, they're they're one in spirit, they're one in heart, 
there's no negotiations taking place like you know like they're in constant disagreement with each other um or uh, on two completely different sides you know two different desires two different hearts or, or three for that matter there's a unity within the godhead that is just organic to it and it's a mystery it, it really is i can't pretend to be able to fully explain that in in limited human language um but we, i think we recognize that theologically that there aren't three gods that there's one god they're united as one there's three beings in one god um but oftentimes when it comes to the cross we treat the trinity the trinity as though it is three separate beings or at least the father and the son as like they're two separate beings you know, so for all of our theology, they're one, they're one, they're one. And at the cross, all of a sudden, they're two co totally separate beings. Jesus wants this, the father wants that, you know, um, and and I think that's 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 pretty dangerous, you know, to 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 get to the cross and split them off that far. Yes, there are ideas and, and, and language that might seem to indicate that because human language is never going to be able to fully articulate the mysteries of divinity. Uh, but we have to keep that in mind, the father and, and the son are one in heart they're one in spirit they're one in desire they're not in a you know in a uh, what's the word i'm looking for in a bickering battle with one another to to, to see who's going to get their way and then because the father has more power <laughs> jesus is like fine i'll do it your way you know um and, and yeah so if if you come at it with this perspective it's easy to read these texts and say oh you know jesus didn't really want to do this but you know, because the dad has so much power, he's like, fine, you know, I'll go through with it. Um, that would that would mean that we've switched from a from a theology where God is three and one to a theology where there's actually three separate gods. And the one yes. with most power is the one who's getting his way here. Um, and that's not what's happening at all. As you said, Jesus in his humanity is wrestling and struggling with the very reality that he's experiencing, you know, the, the suffering and, and, and uh, uh, the, the temptation and all of that, you know, and, and every, uh, every part of his nervous system. Um, oh, by the way, I, I think I'm getting some background noise on your end. So I don't know if you might want to mute your mic. I, I don't think I have anything here, but maybe, maybe there's something I'm missing. Everything's quiet as far as I can tell here. Um, for the moment. I, it might actually, it could actually be my voice coming back through through yours so if you mute it let me just give it a yeah yeah it's gone it's gone all right yeah that's that's probably what it is is my voice coming back um so so yeah so as i was saying you know uh jesus is it's like every part of his nervous system is you know screaming get out get out get out because that's what you know human nature does um and and yet he's like hey i'm going to trust in my father i'm going to trust in his will I'm going to do what 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 he's asked me to do which is precisely what jesus himself wants to do but his human nature is screaming no run away you know? <laughs> but deep down inside this this is what christ wants to do so so yeah i think it's possible to hold these two intention and that they both be true at the same time go on absolutely there's three persons in one being when the father comes down to be as close as he can to the son who's on the cross jesus can't feel the father there he feels like he's alone and yet he's not. So we see how two different persons can be as one being living out utter self-sacrificing love. And yet one is in surrender to the other one as a model to us. And, and then, you know, it says, because he was willing to do this and empty himself like this, therefore God has exalted him 
to the highest position because he's the safest being in the universe. God himself is the safest being in the universe to be exalted. So hopefully that answers that question. I know we're kind of going over it. You know, it's just, it's such an important and powerful concept. But I'm really glad that question came in. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And 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 for, for those listening as well, to remember that, you know, the context of this question, because there's lots of different angles that we can touch on this, but the context of this question is, really fundamentally rooted, and this is the context of every question we're exploring, is God from eternity past a hierarchy of power and control, or is he an eternal community of relationship? And when you understand that God is an eternal relationship, an eternal community of relationship, you can read this text very easily within that framework of God being an eternal community of relationship and Jesus in this part of his mission and his humanity submitting to, you know, where, where the father is leading him and, and, and the will that he's been, you know, discovering in his humanity. As you said, he was a baby. He had to learn these things. Mary had to teach him all these things. Uh, it's, they're very compatible ideas. The, the idea of Jesus submitting to the father and the father not being, or God not being an eternal hierarchy of control and power. And that's really where headship theology lands is the idea that God is this eternal hierarchy of power where the one is in control of the others with no choice in the matter uh, which is essentially what submission means within that context some people try and soften it and we'll talk about that in a little bit nicole but essentially that's what headship is uh, and so in that context when the plan of redemption is made jesus would be like oh yeah look i don't really want to do it but i suppose if you said so you know and and that's not the god we see in scripture all right, I'm going to move on to the next question. Uh, top of the page here, Nicole, does heaven contain hierarchy? I think this is a good follow-up from what we just explored. Um, if yes, is that hierarchy merit-based or based upon class or created order? If no, what does it mean that he was made a little lower than the angels? And it, it speaks of that as well as humans. We've made, made a little lower than the angels. As mentioned in Hebrews, have we misunderstood this text? That's how the question is framed. Hopefully that makes sense. Go for it. Yes, I... Um... Okay, when it comes to authority, God does have a hierarchy, if you want to call it that, in that the creator of the universe who knows everything and has all the power in the universe and literally gives life and breath to everything else in the universe, he has authority. He has the right to decide what happens, where it happens, when it happens, and he can obliterate everything in the universe and create everything new. Like he's on a different level than all of his creation. So, yes, there is that, if you want to call that hierarchy, but that's not what I think this question is talking about. I think all of us understand that the creator has a, a position that the rest of us don't have. We're not all just buddies bumping shoulders with each other here in the universe. However, if we're talking about does heaven contain hierarchy as in there are archangels who are over other angels and angels have to obey other angels and based on class and created order kind of thing, um, that sounds like what, what the question sounds to me like is that there's a pecking order of created beings. And that's the question. I would answer that by saying, I don't think heaven has a hierarchy of that. I think heaven has a lowerarchy of that. When it comes to power, heaven has a, a, stratus, a, a stratifying process by which those who have the most power have the most responsibility to serve. The more power anyone has, the more they're obligated to love, to let go of power, if you will. So yes, there might be some who have extra knowledge, extra gifts, you know, Lucifer was a covering cherub, whatever that means, whatever that means 
in, in this world, we think of like an army where there's the general and he can tell the lieutenant what to do and the lieutenant tells the corporal what to do and you know all that stuff. I don't think heaven does that at all. I think Satan's army probably has a power-based hierarchy where those who are higher control those who are lower out of fear. I think heaven has the opposite. Those who have extra gifts have greater responsibility to serve. Those who have more authority um, have more obligation to reflect the love of God. Not that anybody doesn't reflect the love of God because there is no sin there, but sin started with Lucifer, Lucifer wanting to be like the most high in power and not in character. So what that tells me is that there were there, there was some way that the angels understood that there were layers of responsibility and um, authority. But when Lucifer wanted to be in a different layer of authority and power, he divorced himself from the obligation to serve part of that and instead wanted to use it as power to exalt. And that is foreign to the kingdom of God. So God does have authority to tell the universe what to do. Angels have a responsibility to obey that. But the, the whole accusation of Lucifer was that God was trying to keep the top dog position for himself, specifically that Jesus was. And God could have, for that matter, if we're thinking of how does the universe work, how does heaven work, God could have exercised hierarchical power to quench false allegations. All he had to do was just use power instead of love to deal with it. He says, okay, well, Lucifer is asking questions about me and whether I have the right to do the stuff that I'm going to do. No problem. It's like a mosquito, you know, he just, end of that guy. And then he has the authority to just blot out the memory of Lucifer from any of the angels. You know, nobody will ever remember that Lucifer ever existed again. Okay, so fine. Or God can just wipe out the whole pack of them and start over with another whole universe. Nobody would know except God. And that was not a universe that God was willing to live in because he himself would know that he had done something that exalted power over love. And so instead, he uses his power in self-sacrificing ways to empty himself and say, I will persuade them instead of forcing them. I will show them that love is the best way to run the universe. And this way, affliction will not rise up a second time. I believe that God in his wisdom was probably looking down through the billions and billions of years of eternity and going, okay, well, if I just squash Lucifer like a bug and wipe out the memory of Lucifer from all the other beings that are created, you know, give it a few million years or a few billion, it's going to come back. Somebody else is going to go, well, so how do I know that God is really self-sacrificing? And God has to squish that one too, and then wipe out the memory of that one, or start over with another whole universe, or whatever. God said, we're not going to do it that way. We're not going to run the universe that way. We're not going to make power the first principle of the kingdom because love is the first principle. And I will create beings who can choose whether to love, and then I will give them the information so that they can make an intelligent choice as to whether the universe should be run on love or on power. So does that make sense? Sorry, my mic was muted. I was trying to jump back in. I was like, I can't unmute it. What's going on? <laughs> no, that makes total sense. I, I, I just want to throw two things in here. Number one, I love what you said about lowerarchy. 
um, I've been I've been explaining it, uh, trying to explain the concept of lowerarchy for a while to friends of mine who are are very secular and they see Christianity and church and God in very hierarchical terms. I've been trying to explain to them, you know, that's not that's not actually how the, the God of Scripture works. And I've struggled with that, but someone, and I can't remember who, uh, someone commented on one of the episodes of ours that I put up on on Facebook. Um, and I've never forgotten their comment, and I've been using it ever since brilliantly. And I can't remember who it was, but if you recognize this from one of your comments, shoot me a message, and I'll send you your royalties that are due because I've been using this ever since. <laughs> um, and and the person said that uh, a good way to understand it is kind of like a tree. You know, like you, you don't walk up to a tree and say, "All right, who's in charge here?" You know, and and go to the guy at the top and um, you know, and and say, "Hey, you know, give me all the fruit. You know, I want it." Um, that that's that's not how it works. A tree doesn't have a hierarchy like that. What it what it has is a lowerarchy, and the roots at the very bottom. What what is their job is to give life to the rest of the tree, right? So the roots at the very bottom actually feed the tree. They don't take from it; they give to it. And this is uh, really interesting because in, in scripture, in the book of Acts, it says, you know, God isn't served by human hands as though He needed anything. In fact, it's He who gives life and breath to every living thing. So he's like the roots, you know, that are constantly giving to, 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 to others and uh, giving life and giving breath and giving blessing. And, and so in that sense, if you think about it, like in terms of a lowerarchy, God being, you know, as you mentioned, in I think it was the first episode, the, the throne of the universe is the lowest place in the universe. It's kind of like those roots, if you can, you can picture it that way. And, and it gives to the rest of, 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 of the, you know, to the rest of the universe, to all the living beings. And I was telling a friend of mine, uh, this and saying, you know, because because he he'd actually he's a very secular guy, but he'd gone to a rehab facility that was run by a church because he he was uh, he had a really really bad drug addiction. He'd gone to a rehab facility that was run by a church, but it it was like a it was almost like borderline cultish. It was a lot of really abusive spiritual ideas, and one of the things that they always used to hammer them with was that um, uh, you you will never ever ha be happy or succeed or have blessings in life unless you submit to God. You have to submit to God or else you won't be, you know, you, he'll never bless you. And that he really struggled with that because his father was very abusive. So all he sees is this abusive God sitting in heaven saying, yeah, I have everything you want right here, but you ain't getting it until you drop on your knees. And in his language, again, this is not a religious guy whatsoever. In his language, he's like, I have to drop on my knees and lick his boots, you know, like, <laughs> and then he'll bless me, you know? Um, and so when I explained it to him in, in the concept of a lowerarchy saying, you know, submission, what does submission to God in a lowerarchy look like? It looks like recognizing God is the source of all that is good, as scripture tells us. He's the source of every blessing. And when I'm in harmony with him, when I'm in relationship with him, all of those blessings that he's already sent my way can actually flow, right? It's not that God sitting in heaven on his throne with his feet kicked up on a you know, on a, on a coffee table <laughs> saying, you know, I, 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 I want you to, uh, you know, submit and embarrass yourself. And then I'll throw some, some, some crumbs your way. It, it's the opposite. So that lowerarchy idea, I think is really, really, really powerful to recognize. Like when we see the universe this way, it, it really changes our understanding of so many things that really align with the character of God. So, yeah, I, I would say I agree with you. I think, you know, the universe is and, and this is the thing that's really important because I've had people challenge me before and say, 
you know, particularly because I don't agree with headship theology or hierarchy. And they'll say, ah, oh, yes, but heaven has perfect order and you can't have perfect order unless there's hierarchy. And I'm like, I don't know, a tree has perfect order. It doesn't have hierarchy. <laughs> it's got this perfect ecosystem of giving and receiving, you know, without the hierarchical power structures that compose human empire. So anyways, those are my, those are my thoughts. Fabulous. I totally agree. We don't have to have hierarchy except to get order in a world of sin. Yeah. Um, in a world of sin, you've got to have a pecking order. You can't just send That's out right. the army and say, go guys, they'll be like a flock of chickens. It's not <laughs> going to work. Somebody's got to tell somebody what to do and they've got to cooperate by somebody having authority over others. But in heaven, everybody was like, oh, you go first. No, you go first. And it, it's a different order entirely that sinners just cannot fundamentally understand yeah absolutely absolutely and this is why i think you know when i when i read it talks about abraham he he searched for a city that had foundations right like everywhere he went in this world he was like nah this ain't it this ain't it this is not what i'm looking for and um and i think that that is the longing for you know that other world longing that c.s lewis long that c.s lewis talks about i think is is rooted in like somewhere deep inside we know the way our world is ordered, this is like the best we can do, but it's just not right. Something's off, you know? And I say this to friends of mine all the time, like, you know, like I think the United States of America, you know, uh, really the global North and the advancements that we've made politically, economically, socially, yeah, it's the best we've ever done. And yet I look at it and I'm like, nah, this ain't it. There's gotta be something better. And that's, that's the kingdom of heaven, you know? So anyways, that's almost like a whole other, we're going to go down a rabbit hole. So let me move to the next question. <laughs> Um, okay, so the next question, uh, it's, it's actually quite a long one. So I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to read um, the part that specifically asks us. This is at the bottom of the page where it says, in your Q&A session, could you please directly address the New Testament texts that speak to female-male relationships? And as we mentioned during the podcast series, we weren't going on a ping-pong text battle because we wanted to look at the worldview behind headship theology and address that. Because once you've got that, these texts are actually not that difficult to interpret. Um, but that doesn't mean the texts are not worth interpreting um, and, and wrestling with. So I'll hand it over to you, Nicole. Now, I will say this is uh, the one, one of the questions that I mentioned at the beginning would probably take a semester of school to go through each text and, you know, and, and take your time. We don't have the time for that now. So just touch, us, touch on the ones that you can, and then we can point people to some good resources. Yes. Okay. I am not going to try to exhaustively. There's no way I could exhaustively cover all of these texts, the, the, the question was excellent, brought out a whole list of texts that I would love to handle, but you know what? Um, there are great resources out there that would do a much better job of answering specific questions and going into the Greek and Hebrew and all that. And since I'm a homeschooling mom, and that's been my priority for the last 18 years, because as much as I believe in women in ministry, I also knew that God called me to raise my children. So I haven't gone and taken Greek and I would mispronounce some of those words. But I'll tell you this, the concepts in some of the blogs like Mark Mos Mar Mosco, um, which I know you're going to um, mention that, put that link to her um, website in the bottom of this. But the thing, Mark Mosco, she uh, takes everything apart with thorough theological fine-tooth comb and explains it. So I'm not going to try to do all of that. 
um, but you can look up each of the different texts and she just goes through them and unpacks them carefully. Also, Beth Allison Barr's book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood is fantastic because that one doesn't just go through the biblical text, it goes through history and explains the culture within which the Bible was written and shows some of the things that we don't see when we read it through our cultural lens. Um, but I do want to say this, um, in this question, um, and my heart goes out to the person who's writing this because they went through physical and emotional abuse and watching abuse going on in their family, pastoral family growing up. So this is what I think is a central issue that we do have to talk about, um, that the church does not value women as much as it does men. This is, this is a sad reality, I think. I'm not saying every church leader, I know many church leaders who do value women just as much as men, and it's powerful and it's wonderful to see that. But it's not, as a, as a general principle, the church does not value less powerful people as much as more powerful. So when we talk about sexual assault, for example, we'll say, well, the woman isn't going to be believed as much as the man. Mostly true, but we also know that victims of abuse, even if they're male, are not going to tend to be believed as much as the person in power who is an abuser. Um, the story of Potiphar's wife, for example, is a classic example, not of a woman not being believed, but of the person in power being the one who gets believed and the person who is not in power being the one that ends up not being believed. So the church is full of sinners. We're all conscious of this power dynamic and the wheat and tares are gonna to grow together until the harvest. So we know that the church is gonna be full of sinners, which means that the church is gonna be full of people who are conscious of power and who will further exalt the people in power and crush down those who are not in power. This is an especially strong dynamic within conservative um say groups where there's a very strong emphasis on women being under men and children being under men and um i think it's very important that we at least acknowledge that and point that out but also i, I want to say jesus himself went significantly out of his way culturally to make the point that women were equal to men in his eyes i mean people will go well but he chose 12 male disciples Yes, and he's camping out with these 12 men going all over the place. If he had had a bunch of, you know, 12 women going everywhere with him, think of what that would have done to his reputation, it would have given an excuse for people to, you know, disregard his ministry and say he's in a, caught up in a scandal, he's got a harem, you know. But we do know that even despite that, Jesus has several women who travel with him, who are there with him throughout his ministry and his work women who are right there at the cross when the disciples including these 12 wonderful guys that jesus has chosen to you know be the backbone of his new church they all take off it's the women who are still there the women who are there to take his body to the tomb and you know john and others may come back and forth but i think one of the main reasons the women are still there is because the women weren't trying to use him to get power for themselves. They weren't going, yes, we're going to be on the right and left hand of the thrones, you know, because they knew thrones were never going to be for them. They had given up on that. They loved Jesus. They weren't trying to use him. So Jesus chooses 12 disciples, but that's because he is giving the message that he's starting a new kingdom where there were 12 tribes initially. Now there are 12 disciples. He's bringing out this point through choosing 12 men, but look at the things he does with women. He encourages Mary Magdalene to sit at his feet as a disciple. 
that's not normal. We don't really understand the cultural dynamics that were going on there to let a woman be behaving as a disciple. He talks to the woman at the well, sends her as the evangelist. That's like unheard of. Women don't even have authority. Like they can't even testify in court. And she's the one who goes to the city and she's a woman of poor reputation. He sends Mary Magdalene to tell all the disciples. He doesn't even appear to any one of these men, which would have been a no-brainer. If you really want this to be taken seriously, you appear to men. You don't appear to women or shepherds or these people that have no reputation. So Jesus is getting that message across all the time of lowarchy, not hierarchy. And as Beth Allison Barr brings out, and I don't know if everybody wants to even endorse this, but Jesus is anointed king by a woman, not a man. And that smell of that ointment is on him as he gets whipped, as his hair gets torn out, his beard is ripped out. He can smell that ointment and know this sacrifice is going to pay off. There's somebody who believes that he's the Messiah with all of her heart and is just pouring herself out in gratefulness. And, you know, it's interesting that the four gospels written so many years after everything that's happening within those gospels intentionally seem to bring out these realities that women are doing this, women are doing that. We reading through our Western eyes don't really see the significance of them pointing out women are doing this, women are doing that. And when Jesus stops and talks to this woman, like, wow, you know, of all the people who are there, how ashamed must the disciples have been to write down in the gospels later on and say, actually, there was only one of us that believed Jesus when he said, I'm going to be crucified. And that was Mary Magdalene. The rest of us were like, hmm, wonder what that means. Anyway, who's going to be the top dog? And she's like, he's going to die. I'm going to anoint him. This brings out such, such a powerful principle of, uh, of the lowarchy and how women got it in many ways when the men didn't. Now, when we come to Paul, because this is another part of the question, Paul is taught himself. You know, we, people will be like, well, Paul says women can't teach men. Eh, not actually. He's addressing a local situation in a specific context. And he says, women, I do not allow women to exercise authority over men, but that is not just exercise authority. It's like dominate men in the Greek. And he, he says, I don't let women do that. So we don't know uniquely what's going on there, but I think he would have also said, I don't allow men to dominate other people because what's going on there in the Greek is something that is just not even Christian. It's not Christ-like. But Paul is taught by both Priscilla and Aquila. And you notice whenever they say Priscilla and Aquila, it's like, it's the two person team. They're a ministry team, Priscilla and Aquila. And she's the one whose name comes first. That's kind of odd given the Greco-Roman culture there, but she's the one who comes first. I don't know why, but it's just not the way that they would normally do that. Paul also, when he goes out by the riverside where prayer is want to be made, he teaches Lydia. And apparently a church ends up happening at Lydia's house. Now, in that culture, you would usually talk about Lydia, the wife of whoever, or just leave her name out altogether, but we never hear anything about Lydia's husband, any male in charge. If it were, you know, any other, if it were any male, we just assume it's the house at, you know, the church at this guy's house, but it's Lydia's house. There's also a church at Nymphus house. There's no mention of male leadership there either. That doesn't mean there weren't. They likely had a group of elders who were in charge in churches 
but they're not trying to bring out any male leadership. Paul, another thing that Beth Barr really brings out that I found profound is that Paul keeps writing about men loving their wives. I think he even says it six times. Like we're like, yeah, yeah, men are supposed to love their wives. No, no, that wasn't what, that was like mind blowing to them. Women were like slaves, you know, they're supposed to give birth to your children, but men ran everything. And um, another thing that Beth Ellis and Barr brings out is that when Paul writes the household codes, we read them and we're like, okay, husbands love your wives, wives obey your husbands and children and slaves do these things. She's like, this is not like the other household codes that are written at that time. It's addressed to men, to women, to slaves, to children, as if all of them are human beings with moral responsibility, not men being in control of everything. So when just the fact that Paul would say, husbands, love your wives, that would have been the thing that would be really noticeable. Mark Moscow has a lot of really interesting insights into some of that too. I wish we had more time to cover all of that, but um, I think read what she has to say, it will get a lot more detailed than I can. And as much as Paul gets a bad rap, and you know, I remember feeling like, man, when I get to heaven, I'm going to have some words with Paul, grab him by the neck, you know, just, just give me a couple minutes to get out what I had to go through because of the stupid <laughs> stuff he said, and yeah. then we'll talk, you know, then I can be with him for all of eternity. But Paul, seriously, yeah. <laughs> but the more that I understood what was actually going on, in scripture and in what's going on there. I'm like, oh, wow, Paul was not crushing women down. He was not saying women are nothing. When he says there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, he is citing some of the most intensely unequal comparisons that existed in their culture. Jew and Greek, like his whole identity was, I am a Jew. His you know, his identity, I'm a free man, I'm not a slave. And yet Paul looks at these things and says, these things are nothing now. Being a Jew doesn't make me better than anybody else. Being free doesn't make me better than being a slave. Being male doesn't make me higher than being a female. Like these things are amazing in their culture. So Paul is breaking down barriers left, right, and center when he says some of these things. Um, you know, it's interesting that when you look at Acts 1 and 2, you know, all the way through the Gospels, and I know we mentioned this in the podcast before, all the way through the Gospels, they don't seem to get that there's not going to be a throne at the right and left hand of Jesus. They're not going to be ruling. Acts 1, they get it. They stop striving for supremacy. They come into one accord. That prepares the way for Acts 2, where the Holy Spirit can be poured out and thousands can be converted in a day. And they come into this wonderful unity, which enables them to engage in evangelism. But immediately, God starts breaking down barriers, saying, now that you guys all understand that Parthians, Jews, me, all these people are one in Christ. And of course, they're kind of implying still that the Jews, they, they still think the Jews are more important at that point. Like, God pours out the Holy Spirit on a bunch of racists in Acts 2, honestly. They still don't think the Gentiles can be saved. But look where it goes from there. God's like, all right, now that we've taken care of that, let's start working on showing you guys that everybody is, is potentially my child. In Acts 10, we have Peter and Cornelius. And Peter says these 
groundbreaking words. God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Where just a few days before, God's showing him, you know, rattlesnakes and hippopotamuses and saying, yeah, things like this are not unclean anymore. And he's like, are you kidding me? No way. So God confronts the nationalistic entitlement and supremacy and says, actually, everybody's created in my image. And then Acts 11, there's no fight because they've already gotten the Holy Spirit. The Christian leaders, when Peter tells them the story, they're like, they sit there in stunned silence and they're like, oh, so to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. And then you see next, it goes on to, you know, Acts 16, Lydia, who is going to be a future church leader, is brought into the church. She's not Jewish. She's a believer in the true God, but she's apparently Gentile. And so it, it's funny how God says, all right, guys, now that you all understand that I... Um, want all of you to see each other as equals instead of competing for the highest place like we did all the all through the gospels now let's get into gentiles are not dogs now let's get into women are not dogs like he, he's he has to he has to break down their barriers to help them to see everybody is made in my image and perhaps it's significant that God has to confront their sense of superiority as Jews, even before he confronts their superiority as males. Like, they're like, okay, it's a tough one to swallow, but Gentiles can be human beings. Wait, women too? Oh, wow. <laughs> he's, he's, he's making this progression of leveling the playing field. So it gets to where Paul says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, male nor female. We're all one in Christ Jesus. This is the gospel washing over people and taking away the, the strife for supremacy and helping them to see that every person under heaven is a potential follower of Jesus. There are at least 18 women in Paul's letters. Um, some of them are in positions of spiritual leadership. Phoebe, Priscilla, Nympha, Timothy's mother and grandmother are his spiritual teachers. And Paul specifically says it. He's not like, well, Timothy came along and I took over and taught him. He's like, actually, his mother and grandmother taught him and then I came along. Uh, so he's not seeing the women as nothing. So we read through our lens of our cultural perspective and we're like, how, how come he's not making women be equal to men? And we don't see how Paul is breaking down barriers left, right, and center and showing that um this tremendous astonishing amount of countercultural female leadership honestly absolutely man absolutely and i think when we when we recognize that and it's it's one of the things that i love about what you're saying here um when it comes to looking at these particular texts you know like first corinthians uh, 11 14 ephesians 5 colossians 3 first timothy to first peter 3 are some of the ones that this question mentions and there's others um <clears throat> when we what are the things that I think is a struggle for wrestling with these texts is that people aren't seeing the story that the new Testament is telling. They're not seeing the unfolding nature of God's purpose being progressively fulfilled. Uh, what they're seeing is just these standalone verses that they want to rip out of the story and then apply without thought, without context, without reason 
to all time and all place. And this is this is what, you know, is essentially, you know, fundamentalism. And we talked about this in a previous episode. And one of the two of the books that I recommended were Campbell's books on how fundamentalism crept into Adventism, because the fundamentalist notion uh, is probably the main reason why we're having this problem right now as a denomination. If it wasn't for fundamentalism, entering our church during the 1920s and being calcified in the, in, the, in the decades that followed, we would not be having this fight. This is a straight up fundamentalist fight, uh, which, and fundamentalism is not organic to Adventism. It's not indigenous to Adventism. It, it had to be brought in uh, later on. And, and so when you recognize like, okay, so, you know, in fundamentalism, the notion, you know, I mean, it's a complex phenomenon, but, you know, one of the notions that's, uh, uh, you know, part and parcel of fundamentalism is that uh, the, the the word of God, every single word that is in the scriptures was directly placed there by God, almost as if the author who wrote the Bible was possessed and God bypassed their individuality just to, you know, they were, ba he basically used them as his pen. Um, and uh, of course, Ellen White completely disagrees with this picture time and time again. It wasn't just like one or two statements. It's time and time again. She's saying things that today, if you read it to a fundamentalist, they would say she was a, a heretic, you know, <laughs> unfaithful, ungodly woman, false prophet, because she straight up says things like, you know, um, the, the, the words of scripture are, are, are not God's words. This is exactly like, I remember he, reading that and being like, oh my goodness, that's weird. And, and of course, she affirms that the word is God's word, singular, but that the specific words used to communicate it are, they reflect the personality and the education and the culture of the author. And because God isn't bypassing their individuality, their individuality is reflected in how they write which is why some authors in the Bible are, you know, obviously are more articulate than others, which is why Peter complains about Paul. He actually, in one of Peter's letters, he says he has written many things that are difficult to understand, you know, because <laughs> Peter was a fisherman and Paul was a philosopher. <laughs> so Peter's like, man, this guy's too complicated, but like their individuality is reflected in the text. Um, and, and so when you recognize this, you then the, the problem with fundamentalism is because it denies this, then you can just go to a text and there is no context and you just take it for what it says and you apply it the same way across all time, across all scenarios. But if you don't have that fundamentalist presupposition governing the way you read scripture, it's really easy to read Paul and be like, all right, yeah, this sounds off. It doesn't align with the character of God. Um, so let's understand the context. Let's understand the story that's being told. Let's understand what God is up to in the life of this man. Is it possible that Paul had misogyny? Of course, he's not Jesus. He's Paul, you know. Um, but what is God up to in Paul's life? What is God progressively revealing to not just Paul, but also to all his people? Where is he leading us? And it reminds me of a debate. I don't know if I mentioned this in a previous episode. I got into a debate one time with some guy online, which I've since learned not to debate people online because it's dumb. Um, but he insisted yeah. that, you know, he insisted that, um, there's nothing wrong with slavery because the Bible doesn't condemn it. And uh, I remember even that there was even an Ellen White critic that, um, you know, where Ellen White says that God was punishing, you know, the, the, the America for the sin of slavery. Um, and he says, oh, this is a false prophet because slavery is not a sin, you know, and it's like, 
oh my goodness you know and and so i'm debating this guy uh online and i just wanted to like reach through the screen and just slap him a few times because like do you really need an ancient document to tell you that kidnapping someone against their will and relocating them uh violently and then forcing them to work while treating them like cattle or like less than human uh, is wrong like you need you need a revealed text to tell you that like it's it's yeah, revealed in our own wrong. humanity that this is you know like this is wrong um and so but the thing is what i was trying to help him see which was a waste of time because the guy was completely a, a complete ideologue but is that you don't need a particular text to tell you that because there's a story that scripture is telling and the trajectory of the story is constantly pulling away from these oppressive systems toward this oneness that Paul finally lands at. It's like, oh, one, you know, there's no male, no female, slave, Greek, et cetera. Um, and so when you have fundamentalism governing the way you read the Bible, you're never going to see that because you're going to miss the forest for the trees. You're always going to be hyper-focused on specific language, specific words, and you're not going to think what's the story that's being told here. Uh, so, so yeah, that's just a little bit of a rant there uh, for me with <laughs> regards to fund. I think it's impossible to deconstruct things like headship theology uh, without also deconstructing fundamentalism. Yeah, and I think also we just need to give a nod to the reality as well that translators also add another layer of potential messiness. Just like, you know, we look at the, Jesus says unto the thief on the cross, verily I stand to thee today, you will be with me in paradise. And we mess with the comma there and make a big deal out of, well, but it's supposed to be here, it's supposed to be there. And yet when it comes to wives submit to your husbands, we don't acknowledge that. Look, there are some translation situations there that Mark Moscow brings out that make it a little iffy as to, you know, look, when it says, be filled with the spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your hearts to the Lord, submitting, you know, all of these things are be filled with the spirits, the main point there. And then it's going through doing, these are some examples of what you will do or what you are doing as you are filled with the spirit. And one of those things is submitting yourselves to each other is part of when you're filled with the spirit. You know, the way that it reads in the Greek, it's saying when you are filled with the spirit, these are some things that examples of what it will look like. And one of those is husbands and wives submitting to each other in love and being mutually submissive. And then the next verse that we have in our version may be an entirely different concept starting over. And it says wives to your husbands, um, but everything is supposed to be patterned after the unity of Christ and the church. In Paul's culture, unquestionably, men had more power than women, just like Christ has more power than the church. However, men don't have more knowledge, whereas Christ is omniscient and omnipotent. You know, men are not that much higher than women in knowledge. In fact, there are many women who are better at, you know, finances or something like that. We don't hand it all to the man because he's male. But in Paul's time, he's saying, well, the ones who have the most power are the ones most obligated to reflect sacrificial love in, in their relationships, you know? And this is where any time that we assume that one person is placed by God over somebody else, we are tempting the person who we believe is placed over 
to abuse power. We're placing a temptation, we're dangling a temptation right in front of them. We're like taking the hungry person and saying, here's a package of donuts, you can have as many as you want and walking away. Like, how can we dangle that in front of men? I think women have an advantage just like they did in biblical times. I mean, they had more of an advantage in biblical times in that they were already taught by their culture that they didn't have a right to power over others. Whereas it was harder for the disciples and for the men to get some of that. So um, really the thing is this, the hierarchical thinking itself is what's dangerous. Yeah. And, and I know some of our other questions probably go into that. We really should try to cover as many of them as we can. So maybe yeah. go ahead and read another one. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, I, I just wanted to re-emphasize before we move on. Um, we're we're not we're not skirting the depth of the question here. We're just affirming that the content it would take to interact with all these verses is too much to do in a one hour podcast. It's way too much. So yes. we and I have do want to say one other thing. Yeah. I absolutely believe in the authority of scripture. Mm. I am not undermining that in the slightest. Here. I'm saying that sometimes we need to take into account what's going on behind the scenes so that we can understand the intent of scripture and what mm-hmm. God was trying to communicate through scripture. Absolutely. And rightly understood, even though the scriptures don't outright condemn slavery in some ways, you know, Paul says, hey, Onesimus, go back. But the principle of every person being created equally in the image of God itself strikes at the foundation of slavery Mm. and chauvinism and feminism that is unbalanced. You know, I'm not, I'm, when people say, are you a feminist? No, not if, if you mean saying women are supposed to be over men, you know, who needs those trashy men? We women are better than men anyway. No, 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 no. We do not exalt ourselves over anyone because Mm. that is sin. Yeah. And that is dangerous, but rightly understood, the principles of scripture strike at the heart of all dehumanization of the other. Absolutely. I love that. That's, 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 the, that's a tweet right there, Nicole. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. You know, and, and I'd have to say, um, you know, I think that's so important. It's so, so, so important to recognize that again, just coming back to the notion of fundamentalism and how it impacts negatively our ability to interpret scripture properly. The letters of Paul in the New Testament are just that, they're letters. They're letters written to specific people with specific circumstances, and we don't have all the back and forth letters. We've only got some of them. So we don't fully know what the context is in many of these. We don't fully know what's going on. So where there's this dearth of information, we constantly have to re-anchor ourselves in the fullest revelation that we do have. We can't read something for which we have vague information uh, as having supremacy over something that has a full revelation. And the fullest revelation that we have of who God is and what he's like is in Jesus. And all of this needs to be read through the character of Jesus, through the character of God to to fully appreciate and understand what's going on. Uh, So anyways, I I won't say any more because we're going to move on. Um, So there was another question, but I think we've already addressed it. It's kind of dealing with the idea of, of Paul and his statements and, you know, the church, um, uh, I think, needs to, uh, what, what the question is suggesting is, you know, how do, how do we deal with that? But I think we've spoken of that uh, already. So I, I want to ask one more question that's actually not on this sheet. Um, 
but it does touch on one of the questions that's that's on on this sheet and 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 that is uh, there was a recent article that came out in the Adventist review uh, that spoke of headship theology in a positive way and so one of the questions that also came through uh, asks about you know a nice headship theology um, <laughs> and um, and of course there was then an article that came out I think it was on Adventist today saying you know no such thing. Um, just wanted to get your thoughts, your feedback, because I have interacted with this. There are people who say, oh, headship theology is only bad if you're a mean person, but there can be headship theology where you're nice and kind and you're not abusive. Um, yeah, just would like to get your thoughts. Is it a redeemable concept uh, or or is it is there a better way? That's a great question. Look, the whole the whole Bible essentially is written in a context of where they're assuming that men are entitled to superiority and power over women. It's largely written in the context of what we now see in the Middle East. Largely, that's the culture in which the Bible was written. And God does the best he can with where they are and tries to meet them where they are and gives opportunities for um, them to understand a better way. However, I, I would argue that hierarchical theology is not the solution to like problems of abuse. You, you weren't gonna fix, you were never gonna fix what happened here in the South in America when slave masters believed that they could buy and sell human beings. You couldn't have nice slave masters that outweigh bad slave masters. The, you know, George Washington Carver is taken as a baby and raised by his white slave masters who put him through school and treat him wonderfully. And that's awesome. And that might be an example of how hierarchical theologians, if you will, tried to live out the gospel while still holding on to their entitlement theology. But you were not going to have a whole South made of slave masters who raised a nice slave baby boy and taught him to read. And it just wasn't going to happen because I would argue that the abuse problem is baked into hierarchical theology. It's a feature. It is not a bug. It is whenever you have a combination of sin, which is fundamentally is a temptation to self-exaltation combined with assumption of entitlement to power, you're going to find abuse. And even where you have men who are deeply committed to Christ, doing everything they can to extinguish self-exaltation in their hearts, when you feed them an assumption of entitlement to superiority over women, you're going to tempt them to abuse. You're going to tempt them to promote themselves. Who wants to wipe up the vomit on the floor, right? Who wants to change the dirty diaper that makes you want to gag? If you believe that you're entitled to not having to do that, it's going to take extra commitment to Christ for you to say, let me take the lower place. Let me do that. You go put your feet up. I'll scrub the kitchen floor. You know, this is, it, you're not going to, even if you'll get the occasional man who rises above that and becomes even more self-sacrificing than his wife, because he still believes in his soul, I'm entitled to not having to do this, but out of love for her, I'll do that. You know, great. That's awesome. That's fabulous. But what you've got is, uh, it's a bicycle where the handlebars are sideways and it's gonna keep on going to the side and you're gonna have to keep on pulling hard to keep it on the right track. And it, it's like- That's a great communism. analogy, by the way. Let me just say that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, why does communism never work? Because it is fundamentally at its core, 
mixed with sin. When you give power as an opportunity to abuse to people, and then you tell them, but you really shouldn't. <laughs> Why does communism never work? Yep. Because the, it has the same fundamental weakness and it's baked in and it is a feature of communism that when you mix communist beliefs with power and opportunity to abuse that power, it's going to go the same way every time. You That's can't right. help argue that headship theology actually works. Um, <laughs> we're arguing that communism will work too, mm. that this person could be sanctified enough that they won't fall into being a sinner the way that other people do. Are there godly men who believe in headship theology and yet put themselves in that lower place? Yeah, and I think I think that's what Paul is saying initially when he's like, guys, love your children, love your wives the way that Christ loves the church. He's trying the best he can to deal with a culture in which the men just assume they're over women. And he's saying, well, I can't fix that right now. Just like he says, Onesimus, go back to your master. He can't fix that right now. Hmm. But he's teaching them a theology that just like with Onesimus was going to strike at the heart of slavery because hmm. once the master goes, oh, wow, he's made in the image of Christ, bought with his blood, equal to me. He can't keep treating him like an inferior. Hmm. And, and so that, that whole um that whole theology like combined especially with what we see in our culture you know like an evangelical culture and some of the most of the marriage resources and sex resources out there honestly they teach that sex is for men not for women and it's woven in it's baked into the materials and um as rachel den hollander said that especially in more conservative circles, there's this viewpoint of women that views women primarily by their sexuality. They're either dangerous to a godly man because of their sexuality or there are means to sexual fulfillment. Hmm. You can't help that the, the bicycle will fall off this side of the road or it'll fall off that side of the road because you've made it into something that's about male entitlement. When you assume a person is entitled to superiority, male or female, you tempt them to sin yeah. and and the the temptation even if the person is able to overcome it is going to cause so much sin so much damage we need to get rid of it we need to understand that it all comes back to the core of what is the character of god mm. if god is a god of love then hierarchy isn't the solution to anything if god is a god of pecking order of power then the universe is in deep deep trouble. Absolutely. Could not agree more. So well said. Nicole, uh, I'm out of time. And uh, I'm sure you're ready to, uh, to relax for the evening. But thank you so much. I mean, this has been an absolutely incredible series. Uh, I mean, we've gotten lots of stories as well. I have some stories here that I was going to read out. But I'm really pushing my time here. Um, but we did get lots of stories of people writing in saying, you know, this is my experience with abuse in the church. This is how the church handled it. This is how pastors handled it. This is how elders handled um, women who were being abused, wives, mothers, uh, who were basically hung out to dry because of a theology that justifies male headship. 
in, in, in this really nasty hierarchical way. And, and I do believe 100% that, you know, cause my thing is mission. I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a mission nerd. And uh, I really do believe 100% that we will continue to struggle missionally. It, it, the correlation, right? There's a correlation between our missional ineffectiveness as a church, which is clear. We all know it's there. Um, and the toxic, unhealthy beliefs that we continue to, to espouse and promote about God. But the good news, which is what really excites me, is that Adventism was literally born to protest these ideas. Like, that's why Adventism, yes. in my opinion, yes. sorry to all my liberal friends listening, by the way, Adventism is the apex of the Protestant Reformation. Absolutely. <laughs> it is the rebellion against this hierarchical thinking. That's yes. why it was rooted in anti-racism mm. and born in a context of God saying, I'm going to choose a woman mm -hmm. to help lead this movement. And she'll have more authority than any of these men. Yeah. God himself put his fingerprints on this church mm. and he did it in a specific way to say we are going to get rid of the hierarchical thinking from day one and you, yeah we've gone right back to it but that's because of sin mm. and god is trying to free us from it it's not a side issue women's mm. ordination side issue it mm. is to me yep. i'm like who cares about whether we can pray over women or not whether we'll let them organize churches or not that's not the real issue. Those are the leaves on the tree. Get to the root issue, which is the character of God, that he yes. empties himself, taking the form of a servant, that this is the way he proves that love is the answer. Mm. And when we do that, the leaves will wither up and fall off on their own. And we will see an Acts 2 experience mm. happening in the church where thousands will be converted in a day and the world will sit back and go what is going on with those people that they stand against racism they stand against sexism they love lgbt plus people they live out the gospel and they don't stand for sin they they don't tolerate sin in their midst they don't tolerate abuse they don't tolerate immorality but look how they love yeah. in the midst of everything yeah because we will be letting go of that thirst for power and that, that is everything. Living out the love of God when his character is perfectly reproduced in his people as a people who love God first and love their neighbors as themselves. That's when Jesus will be able to take us home. That wraps it up. I mean, that is it. Can you believe that? That's, wow, that's crazy. We are now done with Padanar Season 6, Saying No to Headship theology. Uh, I just want to give a huge, huge, huge shout out to Nicole Parker for her incredibleness in being willing to be a part of this, uh, to take time out of her incredibly busy schedule uh, for these interviews and for these conversations. Nicole, you were an absolute champ. Thank you so much for, uh, yeah, for contributing and for taking the time to be a part of the Story Church podcast. Uh, also, just a few notes in closing. Uh, this was our final episode for this season. This is the episode where we did our Q&A, but I am certain, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that many other questions remain. Our objective in this Pod in Our series wasn't to go on a ping pong battle with Bible verses. Uh, it means this, it means that, it means the other. What we wanted to do in this Pod in Our series was explore the metaphysic, right? The big underlying theme 
behind it, the systematic connection between headship theology and abuse, and also uh, looking at some of the historical bits on how this theology has crept into Adventism and how it's negatively impacted our message, our mission, so much going on there. So really, our primary objective in this series was to look at that broad picture. Once you understand that this broad picture of headship theology is not biblical, though, uh, questions do still remain. For example, what do you do with Paul? What do you do with a lot of these verses that really seem like that's what they're saying? And we handled a little bit of that in this final Q&A. We also touched on it slightly during the series. But before we were looking more at the big picture than at the specific verses, uh, we didn't get to explore individual textual difficulties at length. So for that reason, uh, we have an actual show page for this particular Potanar series. It's on the Story Church Project website. Uh, you can find it in the show notes for this if you're listening on iTunes or Spotify. You find it on the show notes. And uh, you can also, if you just go to the storychurchproject.com slash podcast, at the very top of the page, you'll have all the episodes of this season with a yellow button underneath. You can't miss it. It says resources for season six. And you just click on that and boom, you will be at the show page. And in that show page, we have incredible books that we recommend uh, and papers and websites as well that explore all the little tidbits of, you know, what did Paul mean in this text? And, you know, how do we understand what he said over here and what was said over there? And and how does this play into headship theology, the debate over women in leadership and women in ministry and women's ordination, all of those bits and pieces. So if you go to the show notes, all of our top resources are there where you can continue to explore, dig deep, and really just unravel those texts in a really profound way, much more than we could do in a podcast. We would probably be here for 30 episodes if we tried to do that, uh, which none of us have time for. So um, <laughs> for those of you who are like, man, I really wish they dealt with this text and that text, we do. We just do it indirectly through the resources that are already available. And guys, there is some incredible stuff, books and websites and blogs. I mean, just absolutely incredible stuff that explains, helps us to understand what these verses mean in their cultural context, in their historical context, and in the context of Scripture's overarching theme, revealing the heart of God, a heart of love, not of control, not of tyranny, not of coercion, not of hierarchy, but of servanthood and relationship and friendship. So check that out, you guys. Again, thestorychurchproject.com slash podcast. If you go there, uh, you will be able to find all of our recommended resources. Now, before I wrap this up and let you guys on your way, I do have to take the time to promote something I'm absolutely excited about. You guys have no ex no idea how stoked I am for this. But did you know? <laughs> well, this is starting to sound like an infomercial. Did you know? Um, they, I've actually launched on the Story Church Project. There is actually an online school now. Like an online school, you guys. I want you to appreciate how epic and radical this is. Uh, I have launched an online school on the Story Church Project website where I teach you how to be an effective missionary in your secular post-church city. Guys, I hear it all the time. I hear 
Adventist young people always complaining about how their church is so out of touch and Adventism's 20 years behind the rest of the world and what we're doing is not relevant to people and the sermons aren't relevant and the church programs aren't relevant. And, you know, we there, I hear these complaints a lot from young people. And guess what? I've complained about it too. But I decided I don't just want to complain. I want to be the difference, right? I want to make a difference. And I know that I have an opportunity to make a difference with this platform I've been building over the last few years. So I decided to launch an online school called the Mission Collective. And in this school, uh, I will teach you everything I know about postmodernism, metamodernism, posthumanism, all these different shifts that are coming that are going to make evangelism, discipleship 10 times harder than we have it today. We're going to explore all of these things in details. I'm going to give you the tools, the PowerPoints, the PDFs, but more importantly, the relationship, because I get to jump on live Zoom calls with you where I am teaching you how to be a post-church missionary, how to contextualize the gospel, how to identify people of peace, how to reach your sphere of influence, how to be the change that you wish to see in the church. We get to visit all of our theological beliefs, our doctrines as Adventists, and look at them through new lenses, exploring how we can share this to secular people, unchurched people, post-church people, skeptical people, all of these different challenges that we face in the world today. Ultimately, the goal of the Mission Collective is to equip and empower a whole new generation of post-church missionaries. This is a post-church mission school, urban secular mission school. And if that's something that you feel like, man, I would really love to learn uh, how to share the gospel in this incredibly rapidly changing world, and you're sick of waiting on, you know, uh, someone else to do it, the institution to do it, local church leaders to do it, and you're just like, man, I just want to get equipped so I can get out there and start making a difference, definitely head over to the storychurchproject.com. If you just go straight to the link to storychurchproject.com, the very first page that opens up is a, is a little description of what the Mission Collective is all about. Now, this online school is not free, you guys. There is a fee that you have to pay, but I'm telling you, you're going to be learning stuff in this course that most people would have to go to university to learn. Pay thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to learn everything I'm going to be teaching you, and it only costs 25 bucks a month. This means it's basically just a subscription for $25 a month. You get access to these training sessions. We do live training sessions twice a month. We have a private WhatsApp group for all the students where we share with each other and learn together. We have a open mic Zoom gatherings where we all just get together and explore the different content that we're learning. You get free access to all my PowerPoints and PDFs and even eBooks and other online courses. Uh, so for only $25 a month. And if you miss a session, it's been recorded so you can come back after, log into the portal and access the content that way. So it's absolutely incredible the amount of value that you're going to be getting. It far exceeds 25 bucks a month. So man, head over to the storychurchproject.com, read a little bit more about what the Mission Collective Online School is all about, and sign up. Sign up, you guys. I want to see you there. I want you to be a part of this. I want us to grow together, learn together. I want us to stop whinging about how out of touch the church is and just get together and be the change that we want to see. Get ourselves equipped, empowered, tooled up, <laughs> if that makes sense, to be radically effective missionaries in our secular urban spaces. So you don't want to miss this, guys. Best of all, 
I mean, I've already mentioned this, but let me just emphasize it a little bit more. Uh, these aren't pre-recorded videos. You actually jumping on live Zoom training sessions with me. You get to ask questions. We get to interact and I get to empower and equip you in all the ways that you need. So that is the Mission Collective Online School. Make sure you check that out. And uh, all right, with that incredibly amazing infomercial now complete, uh, I guess that's it. This brings us to the end of Padernar Season 6, saying no to headship theology. Thank you guys for tuning in. You've been absolutely amazing. And I'm going to take a little bit of a break on the podcast, and I'll be back with something super awesome. Not quite sure what it'll be yet, but uh, it's going to be incredible. Until then, keep building the kingdom. <laughs>